Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Stairway to Danger by John Blaine. Volume 3, Chapter 4, A Problem in Cybernetics We've got to be sure of our ground, Rick said. We don't want to get Captain Douglas to send a cruiser without more proof than we have. Not when he's so short-handed. Julius Weiss and Parnell Winston nodded agreement. It wouldn't do to call for help without more proof than the odor of banana oil and a hinged board, Winston agreed. But how can you get any sort of proof? Weiss asked. Rick knew the answer to that one. If we can show that the amusement park has no caretaker, isn't that reason enough for Captain Douglas to take a look? Winston grinned. Plenty. Rick picked up the telephone and dialed the operator. I want to place a call to New York, he said. No, I don't know the number, but it's a business firm. Michael Curtis Investigations? Scotty handed him a pencil and a pad of paper. Rick wrote down the number as the operator recited it after calling information. There was a pause, then the number rang, and a girl's voice answered. Is Mr. Curtis there? Rick inquired. I'm sorry, Mr. Curtis is not in. Can I help you? Mike probably was working a case, Rick thought. Can you get in touch with him, he asked. I can try, if it's urgent. It is, Rick said definitely. Take a message for him, please. All right. Rick dictated slowly. Urgent. You find out present status Seaside Playland Amusement Park. Located Shore Road, Seaford. Especially need to know if caretaker is employed there. Park now out of business. Sign it Rick Brandt. The girl read the message back, promised to do what she could, and then rang off. Rick turned to his friends. That's it. Mike is out, which means he's probably on a case, so we can't expect too much speed. I could go into New York and step around myself, I suppose, but it's probably faster to wait for Mike. He knows how to get that kind of dope in a hurry. Mike Curtis, private detective, was an old friend who had worked with Rick and Scotty during the Seagold adventure. Mike had learned the identity of the mysterious and ruthless figure who had not stopped an attempted murder in trying to take over the Seagold plant. We might as well get to work, Scotty said. Need any hired hands? Just by coincidence, we need two, Parnell Winston smiled. Come on, I'll give you assignments. Know what we're up to? In a general way, Rick told him. Dad described the thing to us, but there's plenty more I'd like to know. You can ask questions as we go along. Winston showed them a workbench. That's yours. You'll find most of the tools you need. If any are missing, borrow from the technicians. The new scientist found a sheaf of sketches and handed them to Rick. 
Your father tells me I can turn over a project to you two and then forget about it. Well, that kind of depends on the project, Rick said with a grin. What is this one? Winston replied with a question. Did Hartson tell you about possible military uses for this thing? As the boys nodded, he went on. Well, such uses require that the control unit used by the soldier be compact, waterproof, rugged enough to take a beating, and cheap to produce. Rick leafed through the drawings. Just to give us an idea before we start studying these, can you tell us how the control unit will work? Very easily. The unit will be a microwave radio, operating on a wavelength of one centimeter. That means, of course, that it will be useful only on line of sight, since a centimeter wave acts much like light. The operator will speak code words into the unit, and the machine will respond. For the sake of ruggedness, compactness, and simplicity, we'll use a printed circuit and transistors in a plastic case. Any other questions? Just one, Rick said. Is this a variable current? Are we going to need to tune the unit? No. We'll use a fixed circuit for this machine. If the machine is acceptable to the military, it will be a simple matter to vary the circuit as required. Good enough, Rick agreed. We'll get busy. I suppose all the dope we need is in these papers. It's all laid out for you, Winston told them. If you run into trouble, call me or Julius. Julius Weiss was back at work again on a complex-looking circuit built into an aluminum frame about the size of a portable typewriter case. Scotty found stools and they sat down. The ex-Marine rubbed his chin. Well, where do we start, boss? By studying these papers, Rick said. He proceeded to lay them out on the bench. He had never had an assignment quite like this one before, but as he went through the design, he saw that it was not going to be a very hard job. It would require precise, painstaking work, but they could do it. The first step was to lay out the design of the printed circuit. Instead of using wires, this little control would use lines of silver, actually silver ink, printed onto a sheet of plastic. The condensers, resistors, and other parts would be glued into the circuit as required. This doesn't look too bad, Scotty said. We could do it in a couple of days if we really plug away. But what's this transistor stuff? We've never used transistors before. They must be tubes because the places of the design where they go are the places where we use tubes. They act like tubes, Rick agreed. But that's all. They're nothing like tubes. He searched for a simple explanation. Do you know how a vacuum tube works? Electrons flow from the cathode and are made to do certain things. Well, to make them flow, the cathode has to be heated. You might even say that the electrons are cooked off the cathode. That takes a lot of power and produces a lot of heat. Also, the cheapest way to make a tube is to use glass, either with the air taken out or with some inert gas like Krypton put in. Glass breaks, so that kind of tube isn't very rugged. There are metal tubes, but they cost more, and they're still subject to failure. I know about that, Scotty said, but where does the transistor come in? Well, if you take certain elements in the form of crystals, I mean with crystal structure, you find where there are either too many electrons or too few. The electrons can move inside the stuff just the way they move through empty space in a tube, and it's easier to make them move. It doesn't take too much power. So if you apply a little current in the right place between the 
part which has too many electrons and the part that doesn't have enough, you can control the flow of electrons just the way the grid in a vacuum tube does. Is that clear? I get the idea, Scotty agreed. It's like having a solid tube which doesn't take much power to operate. Rick nodded. Yeah, that's about right. He searched through a box of materials on the back of the bench and found a tiny object that resembled a plastic bean. Three wires projected from the one from each end and one from the center. Rick pointed to them in order. Input, output, and grid. And this little gimmick is an equivalent of a tube. Scotty shook his head. I'm snowed, he said. Every time I think I know about electronics, up comes something new. Rick drew a set of draftsman's tools toward him from the back of the bench, rummaged through a box of assorted materials until he found some heavy white paper, then settled down to work. The first step was to plan the physical layout of the tiny control unit, which was nothing more than a miniature transmitter. The size would be determined mainly by two things, the power supply and the microphone. Those would be the bulkiest. Take a look, he suggested. What kind of power supply does this thing need? Scotty went through the design until he found what he needed. Believe it or not, he announced, this thing will operate on one pencil-type battery. It's the kind of battery they use in hearing aids. That's because we're using transistors. How about the microphone? Winston came by in time to hear the question. He reached toward the back of the bench and produced a cardboard box. Here it is. It's a crystal, designed to be mounted on a plastic plate. You'll find instructions inside. The microphone was about the size and thickness of a bottle cap. Rick did some quick figuring and then turned to Scotty with a grin. Know how big this handy-dandy dingus is going to be? Pretty small, Scotty guessed. About six inches by three? It's going to fit into a playing card deck, Rick told him. And there'll be some room left over. The boys worked rapidly for the rest of the day, not talking much. They divided the work, as always, with Rick taking the job of building the circuit while Scotty made the case and then some of the parts that were required. Rick drew the circuit on stiff paper, first in pencil with frequent erasures. Then, as he fitted the lines into a rectangle of the proper size, he began to ink them in. When he had finished, he had an exact scale drawing of the completed circuit. He let the ink dry while he chatted with Parnell Winston, then went to work with scissors and painstakingly cut the circuit out of the paper. It was late afternoon before he finished. He put the fragile paper skeleton down and looked at Scotty. How are you doing? Scotty had been cutting and shaping thin sheets of plastic. He had the various parts of the case completed but not assembled. His biggest job remained to be done. It was the slow, careful grinding of the front of the case to take the tiny microphone. The little mic would be inside the case, and the plastic wall in front of it had to be so thin it would vibrate when the sound of a voice hit it. Scotty was planning to do the job with a sanding disc mounted on a drill press. I'm making good time, Scotty said. How many of these sets are we building? Rick didn't know. He called to Parnell Winston, who was working across the room. Dr. Winston, how many of these will you want? Let's have four the scientist answered. We have just enough pots for that many. He put down the work he was doing and joined the boys at the bench. His keen eyes took in what they had accomplished. My, but you are a fast pair, 
When will we have the first one done? It depends on how long we work tonight, Rick answered. How about our staying over? We could work late, and at the same time we can keep an eye on the amusement park. Dr. Winston thought it over. I'm not so sure that's a good idea. We'd better ask Julius. He walked over to the little mathematician, talked with him briefly, then came back grinning. I was a little worried about your ability to take care of yourselves, he admitted. Julius tells me to stop worrying. He claims that if you were dumped into a cage of tigers, he would worry about the welfare of the tigers. The young man chuckled. Then we'll stay, Rick said. All right, you'll find army cots and blankets on the second floor. There's a hot plate under the bench nearest the door, and the makings with coffee and a few assorted cans of food. You won't eat like kings, but you won't starve either. The scientist looked at his watch. Oh, it's quitting time. Winston and Weiss rode from Whiteside to the project and back each day with one of the technicians. Someone from Spindrift met them at the pier in one of the island motorboats. Rick and Scotty waited until the others had gone. Then they walked to the plane and staked it down, using a pair of steel stakes from the baggage compartment. When the cub was secure, they took four additional stakes and drove them into the ground in the form of a square with the plane in the middle. They took a coil of wire and strung it between the stakes, forming a low two-strand fence. Then Rick took the ends of the wires and led them in through the plane door, which he left partially ajar. Inside, he connected the wires to a small black box under the dashboard. Taking care not to touch the plane, he reached in through the open door and flipped a switch. The device was a cross between an electric fence and a burglar alarm. If anyone touched the fence, he would get a slight warning shock. If he jumped the fence and touched the plane, a loud horn would blow, and it would continue blowing until someone came to shut it off. The gadget was not foolproof by any means. Anybody determined to steal the plane could do so by studying the circuit and then disconnecting it, but casual visitors would be warned away. As Rick backed away, he looked at the amusement park fence. For a moment, he thought he saw the hinged board move, but he watched steadily for a few seconds and saw nothing. Must have been his imagination, he thought. Let's go crack a can of beans and make a pot of coffee, Scotty suggested. I'm so hungry my stomach is sending out SOS messages. Come to think of it, I could eat myself, Rick admitted. Don't eat yourself, Scotty exclaimed in mock horror. That's cannibalism. Eat the beans instead. They're more nourishing anyway, Rick groaned. Chapter 6 Will-O-Wisp Rick sat in darkness, letting his thoughts wander keeping his eyes turned in the direction of the amusement park. Scotty's deep, regular breathing was the only sound. The luminous dial of Rick's watch told him it was just past midnight. Two hours to go before he would awaken Scotty and then go to his own cot. They had decided they would take turns, four hours on and four hours off, and keeping an eye on the amusement park. Rick was sure the car was still in the funhouse. The project building was close enough so that the sound of the car would not have gone unnoticed if it had left during the day. He was determined that it would not get out without their knowing it. They couldn't be sure it was the maroon car repainted, but there was a good chance. He and Scotty had a score to settle with the driver who had come within an ace of hurting Barbie seriously. 
He leaned forward and stared out the window. He was above the level of the fence, and he could clearly see into the amusement park, or as clearly as the darkness permitted. It was a moonless night, slight overcast, and the buildings inside the fence were only dark blurs. The sudden glitter of a star low on the horizon attracted him. He watched it and noticed how diffused it seemed. It must be one of the planets, probably Jupiter, diffused by a thin cloud, he decided. Then he changed his mind. No star or planet moved that quickly. And this one had. He leaned out the window, straining to see. The light was too high to be on top of any building. But he suddenly realized, not too high, to be on top of the roller coaster. The high curve of the roller coaster was just visible, no doubt of it. The light was on the coaster's highest point. With a bound, he was at Scotty's cot, shaking him. Scotty sat bolt upright. What's up, Rick? There's a light on top of the roller coaster. At a moment, both boys were at the window. Scotty watched for a moment. Wonder you didn't miss it entirely, he said. It's no brighter than a will-o'-wisp. Wonder what it is. Could be a pencil flashlight with a handkerchief over it, Rick surmised. Question is, what are we going to do about it? Scotty hesitated. Well, if we could get closer. Rick knew what he meant. What are we waiting for? They went down the stairs and through the litter of parts on the first floor, then out into the night. They had to go slowly because there was so little light. They found the loose board in the fence and slipped into the amusement park. Scotty put his lips against Rick's ear and whispered, How do you get to the top of the roller coaster? Well, I noticed a sort of ladder, Rick answered in a whisper. It leads from the top of the funhouse. Looks like we better go pay another visit to our pal, the caretaker, Scotty murmured. Let's go. They made their way slowly, stopping frequently to listen. The light on the top of the roller coaster was no longer visible, and once they stopped to listen, they heard a muffled voice. Rick turned and looked back the way they had come. It was only darkness. What was more important is that there was nothing against which they could be seen as silhouettes. They were safe enough if no lights were turned on, and if they were very quiet. Rick estimated that they had covered about a third of the distance in the funhouse. He tugged at Scotty's sleeve and whispered that they had better swing wide and approach the place from the rear. The caretaker had probably succeeded in locking the door through the booth. Besides, what they wanted to see was in a room at the back. Scotty whispered his agreement and they slanted off past a row of concession buildings, keeping far enough away from the buildings to avoid rubble but close enough so they could jump behind them if necessary. Rick's pulse was a little faster than usual. The caretaker was a tough customer, and his threat to knock their heads together was not an idle one. The clouds overhead were thinning a little, and starlight enabled them to see somewhat better, although it was still far too dark for easy going. Once Rick banged his shins against something and gritted his teeth to keep from crying out, he had to sit down and rub his legs until the pain went away. By slow stages, they passed the funhouse. Then they started angling in to approach it from the rear. 
They were close enough under the roller coaster to see every detail of its structure as a dense black outline against the lesser darkness of the sky. There was no longer any sign of any light, nor of any living thing, on the roller coaster. Rick wondered for the tenth time what anyone would be doing up there. He thought of going up for a look, but knew that was impossible. The climb would be bad enough with light. Without, it would be close to suicide. Roller coasters weren't made for casual climbing, at least not in the dark. The back of the fun house was in full view now, but no light showed. Then as they approached, a light appeared. It was a yellow, unsteady light that came through a window set in the back of the building. The window was about eight feet above the ground. The boys stopped fifty feet away and consulted in whispers. How do we get a look into that window? Rick asked. Scotty whispered back, I don't know, unless you stand on my shoulders. That's too risky, Rick replied. One slip and they'd have us. We couldn't keep from making noise. There's got to be some other way. Well, let's look for a crack, Scotty suggested. They scanned the rear of the building for a telltale gleam of light, but there was none. Now what? Rick asked. He looked for a vantage point from which they might be able to see through the window, but saw only the roller coaster. He examined the structure more closely. The highest point was close to the funhouse, so getting on the track wasn't practical, but it might be possible to shinny up one of the uprights. There were enough cross pieces to help out. He whispered the idea in Scotty's ear. Scotty immediately walked to the nearest upright and felt for handholds, there was a cross piece directly above their heads, and another one about six feet above that. Rick nudged Scotty and pointed to the second one. Scotty wrapped his legs around the upright and started up. Rick waited until he was standing on the first cross piece, then followed. The wood of the upright seemed soft. Rick realized it was rotting away under the flaky paint. But it seemed sturdy enough. It would hold them. He gripped the first cross piece and hauled himself up. In a moment, he was standing on it, waiting for Scotty to get a seat on the upper piece. Scotty whispered something that Rick didn't get, but he answered, Be with you in a second. He shinned up the upright and swung to a seat next to Scotty. Both had their arms braced around the upright. Rick looked down. It was black under them. He could just make out the white paint of the upright. Ahead, at a slight angle below them, was the window. It looked into a big room filled with machinery. Rick guessed it was the machinery that had operated most of the funhouse apparatus. The car sat in a clear space. He could see its engine hood, but that was it. The source of the light was a lantern. It sat on a wooden plank table, and two men were seated before it. One was the caretaker. The second man was red-headed, with close-cropped hair. His face was thin, and his thinness emphasized the width of his jaw. His mouth was a colorless line turned down at the corners. Not much for looks, Scotty whispered. It was a fine piece of understatement, Rick thought. The man gave him the creeps. I wonder who he is, he said. Scotty whispered. I won't forget a face like that. Whoever the man was, he was nervous. His big hands kept drumming on the table as he talked to his companion. 
He fidgeted in his chair. Then he stood up and walked out of the boy's line of vision. Rick craned to see where he had gone and leaned out too far. He grabbed desperately at the upright, missed it, then got one arm wrapped around the crosspiece on which he had been sitting. His body swung down, and there was an unholy screech as the nails of the crosspiece gave way. The crosspiece swung down, and Rick dropped, flexing his knees. He landed with a thud and sprawled flat on the ground. Scotty came down the upright like a fireman down a pole and helped to his feet. Run for it, Rick gasped. He led the way, running at top speed, despite the stinging in his feet from the landing. The back door of the funhouse had crashed open and yellow light came spilling through. Rick dodged into the shadow of a building and kept running. Scotty was close behind. They heard running feet, but no other sound. Be as quiet as you can, Scotty whispered. They can't see us, and if they can't hear us, they won't know where we went. Slow down. Well, that made sense to Rick. He slowed his headlong flight and took time to look back. Their pursuers were not close. But he saw a flashlight beam searching the ground some distance behind them. Scotty took his arm and pointed. A second flashlight was moving away from the first. That was good. So far as they knew, there were only two men. They could keep track of their movements. Going slowly with frequent checks on the locations of the flashlights, they angled across the park. The pursuers were together again, far up the fence near the hinged board. All safe so far, Rick whispered. He led the way to the loose board quietly, but without lingering. In a short time, they were behind the locked doors of the project. For a long time, they crouched at the upstairs window. They watched the flashlights move, first to the gate near the road, then outside. Rick held his breath, waiting for the plane's burglar alarm to sound. After a while, the flashlights returned again and approached to a spot almost under their window to the loose board in the fence. The boys watched, scarcely daring to draw a breath, although Rick was sure the two men had guessed their identity. Probably the reason the two hadn't invaded the project was that they couldn't be sure how many men had stayed overnight. Presently, the flashlights moved away, and there was nothing but darkness. Chapter 7 Locked Controls When Parnell Winston and Julius Weiss arrived from Spindrift the following morning, they found Rick and Scotty already at work. The boys told the scientists about their adventure of the previous night. At the end, Rick pulled up his trouser leg and showed a pair of bruised knees. Do I get the purple heart for my wounds? he demanded. I'm tempted to revoke your junior G-man badge, Winston said. What you did was fine, but where are the results? The only thing you know today that you didn't know yesterday is what the second man looks like. Where is the gain in that? There isn't any, Rick agreed unhappily. That's what makes it rough. All we have to show for it is a pair of skin knees. Now what? Winston asked. Now we go to work and forget about the characters in the funhouse, at least for a while, Rick sighed. And we have to go back again. What's for? Julius Weiss demanded. We have to get a look at the engine serial number on that car. I don't know how we could do it yet, but that's the only way we're going to prove that it's a hit-and-run car. 
Well, that's the only way we've thought of, Scotty added. One of us can cause a commotion, and when the men come out to see what's happening, the other can sneak in. Parnell Winston rose abruptly. Please don't say any more, he warned. You spring ideas like that on us, and we'll have no choice but to tell you not to try it. Right, Julius? Absolutely, Weiss agreed. The boys got to work. The evening before, Rick had completed his cutout of the circuit and had stretched a piece of silk on a small frame. Now he put the circuit cutout on the silk and systematically sprayed the silk with layer after layer of liquid plastic, until he was certain that the coating was watertight. Then he let the last coat of plastic dry. He lifted the circuit cutout. Where the cutout had been, the silk was still untouched. Everywhere else it was coated with plastic. Scotty, meanwhile, had cut a sheet of thin plastic to the right size. Rick took it, placed the silk screen on it, adjusted it carefully, then put clamps on to hold it in place. The next step was to mix a finely powdered metallic silver with a special quick-drying resin glue. Rick took a fine paintbrush and painted the silk screen with a uniform coat of the mixture. Then he waited a few moments, removed the clamps, and lifted the silk screen off. On the plastic sheet, which was slightly smaller than a playing card, silver lines gleamed in the exact shape of the circuit. These printed silver lines were the wires of the small transmitter. The rest was easy but slow. Rick carefully glued the various parts in place. There were condensers, transformers, the microphone, a screw for the antenna rod, a toggle switch. After they were all in place, he soldered them to the silver lines. While he worked, Scotty ground out the dime-sized hole in the front plastic cover where the microphone would rest. After lunch, Rick took Scotty's plastic, on which the transmitter was now complete, and mounted it with the plastic sheets which he had fabricated the day before. As each piece went into place, forming a box, he welded the pieces of plastic together by using acetone as a solvent. The last step was to insert the battery. It went home against the contact points Rick had wired into the circuit. Now only the antenna remained. A tempered steel wire a few inches long was thrust into place, and the little control transmitter was complete, except for testing. The young men walked over to where Parnell Winston and Julius Wise were fitting a completed unit to bolts on the tractor. We're ready for a test, Rick announced. The scientist looked up surprised. So soon? Winston asked. That's remarkably fast work. Julius, are we ready? Just barely, Wise said. He connected terminals to a 12-cell storage battery through a switch and said to Rick, Say something. Rick held the transmitter to his lips and asked, Does it work? Relays clicked in series through the unit the scientists had just mounted. I'll say it does, Winston exclaimed. Well done, both of you. How long will it take to make the other units? Another day, Rick said. We have the silk screen now, and Scotty has the templates for the case. It's just a matter of assembling the parts. Weiss examined the little transmitter. Fine, now I suggest you set the entire circuit in plastic. 
that will prevent any breakage, no matter how roughly it is handled. That's a good idea, Rick agreed. Do we have the stuff? You'll find it in the supply box, Winston said. The boys left the scientists their work and rummaged in the supply box until they found what they needed, a can of liquid plastic and hardening powder. While Scotty took off the upper lid of the tiny box, Rick mixed some of the plastic with hardening powder. Then he poured the stuff into the radio until it was level with the top and put the box aside to harden. Once the plastic was hardened, the control unit would be completely embedded, almost impervious to damage, moisture, or temperature. Let's go home, Rick suggested. There's nothing more we need to do today. They said goodbye to the scientist and went outside into the bright sunlight. On impulse, Rick walked to the fence. He was curious about what the two men had been doing last night. He found the board they had pried loose and motioned to Scotty to take a look. Scotty did so and grinned. Tight as a tick. They were making sure we didn't get in again that way. But how? We didn't hear any hammering. They probably used screws, Rick surmised. Anyway, they did a good job of it. He pushed at the board and it didn't move at all. Scotty frowned. When do we do our next job? We can't stall too long. If that's the car that hit Barbie, we want to know it now before they can get away. Maybe tonight, Rick suggested. Suppose we come down by boat. Depends, Scotty said looking at the sky. If it's another dark night like last night, we can do it. The plane was as they had left it. Just to be sure, Rick touched the cub. The horde blasted. He cut the switch quickly and disconnected the wires. They stowed the stakes and wire in the luggage compartment. Then Rick got in the pilot's seat while Scotty spun the propeller. The engine caught. Scotty climbed in while Rick let it warm up. Rick gunned the plane and taxied down the field to the very end of the amusement park fence. He tested the controls and they reacted perfectly. He released the brakes and the cub rushed through the grass, sluggish because of the drag. Finally, the tail came up and in a moment they were airborne. Rick climbed for altitude and about 800 feet banged left on a course for spin drift. The cub slid around smoothly and Rick moved the wheel to level off. But it didn't respond. He put more muscle into it, but the wheel wouldn't move at all. The controls were locked. Tentatively, he tried his ailerons again, in the opposite direction. It was no use. They were frozen. He tried his elevators, gently at first and then hard. They were locked. So was his rudder. He looked at Scotty, face white. She's frozen! Scotty's face locks color. What do we do? Rick was already cranking his tab controls. I I I'll try to trim for level flight. You get as far away from me as you can. Scotty was on the upper side of the plane. They were flying in a shallow bank of about 15 degrees. When Rick got his tabs fully trimmed, the angle was a bit less, but they were still swinging in a wide circle. There's only one thing to do, Scotty said. I gotta get out and hang on the strut. That'll balance us, Rick considered. He had no suggestions to counter Scotty's. One thing was certain. They couldn't keep swinging in circles forever. 
He tried the controls again. From sheer habit, he had kept his hand on the wheel and his feet on the rudder pedals, but both were useless. Stand up as much as you can, he said. I'm going to slide under you. Maybe if we're both on that side, it will balance us. Scotty did so, and Rick slid under him. The horizon leveled somewhat, but still not enough. We'll have to do it your way, he told Scotty. Only I'm going to get out. Scotty grunted. If we ever land this thing, it'll have to be done with the tabs. I can't do that. I haven't been flying long enough. You're going to have to do it. So I'll get out. Rick had to agree his friend was right. He started to tell him to be sure to hang on tight, but realized Scotty would need no such instructions. He looked out and estimated their position. They were over the land facing south. He wanted to be over the water facing north. Sit tight. We'll let the plane circle a little more so we're in the right direction. He had to marvel at Scotty's calm tone of voice. Exactly how much chance do we have of landing? Rick's own voice was pretty steady. Poor, but not impossible. If we could get level, I'll try to let us down on the tabs. Where? Whiteside Airport? That had been Rick's first thought, but he changed his mind. No, Spindrift. Frankly, Scotty, I don't think we'll make it. This kite is so light, any breeze could knock us off course. I'd rather take my chances on dropping into the water than to smash into a house or something. You're right, Scotty said. Well, give me the word and I'll climb out. Rick watched the horizon move slowly around. Fortunately, he had leveled off before banking. The plane had maintained altitude. Get set, he said. Scotty pushed the door open, using plenty of muscle to force it out against the wind. The compass settled to due north. Now, Rick called. His voice shook. Scotty swung out, his knuckles white as he gripped the door. His body had a tendency to fly back in the wind, but he hunched forward until he had both feet on the diagonal strut that ran from wing to undercarriage. Rick reached into the luggage compartment behind him and got a steel stake and pushed it into the crack of the door just above the hinge. The door stayed open, but the plane swerved as the wind struck the door. Rick had to move quickly across the cabin and work under the rudder trim tab until they were flying straight again. The breeze sweeping in through the door was cold, but both boys were sweating. Seaford passed beneath. Rick sat upright and watched for Spindrift. Scotty was holding on for dear life, but he was in a more comfortable position now, one arm locked around the doorframe, and he had taken the precaution of lowering the window before opening the door. Why had the controls locked? Why? Rick knew he had tested them. Such testing was automatic. Besides, they had taken off all right. Going to the bank had locked them somehow. He tried the rudder pedals again and thought they moved the slightest bit. Brenda's marsh was below. They were on course. Rick went over a plan in his mind. He had just under 800 feet to lose, using the elevator trim tabs. He knew perfectly well he would never make the field a spindrift. The margin was too close. But if he could gauge it to land in the water right off Pirate's Field, 
they should be able to crawl out with a whole skin. There was only one small joker. To make a full stall landing in the water, he would have to get the tail down, and that took elevator control. Also, he couldn't even try it with Scotty holding on the outside of the plane. Scotty would have to come in. That meant the plane would hit the water with one wing low, which, of course, meant disaster. Spindrift loomed ahead on the horizon. Rick worked the tabs and the plane started letting down in a very shallow dive. He throttled back a little. Scotty raised his eyebrows. Rick bent toward him and yelled, Be ready to get inside in a hurry when I tell you! Scotty nodded. His face was red from the wind, but he was grinning. Rick thought his pal would probably grin to the faces of a firing squad if it ever came to that. Wasn't far from it now. The crack-up when it came would be like driving head-on into a stone wall at high speed. The altimeter registered the loss of altitude. They were down to 500 feet and still losing. But Spindrift was coming closer. Rick began to worry. Had he started down soon enough? He sighted along the nose of the plane. No doubt of it, he was overshooting. He pulled back on the throttle and the nose dropped. Scotty grinned at him. The altimeter read 300 feet. Scotty's nerve was good, Rick knew. He shifted plans slightly and motioned to his pal to go out as far as he could. Scotty took a firm grip on the door with one hand and leaned far out. The plan banked a little out to sea. Rick helped them move with the rudder tabs. Then, when they were about 30 degrees away from land, he called, Scotty, come in! Scotty's teeth were chattering and his lips were blue. Now what? he asked. Rick was back in his own seat, and the plane was banking in toward land, but very slowly. If I figured it right, we should come parallel to Pirate's Field. When I give the word, you hop into the luggage compartment. Keep on your own side. I'll be there with you. We've got to get the tail down if we want to come out of this. Got it, Scotty said coolly. They weren't banking fast enough. Rick moved the aileron trim tabs back to normal and increased the angle of turn. He saw with satisfaction that they would make it. The plane was low over the water now, so low, in fact, that the altimeter was no longer trustworthy. Rick estimated about 50 feet. Spindrift was dead ahead. They had banked out and then banked back, and the plane was approaching from the sea. We'll just miss the end of the island, Rick said with false calmness. This was going to be rough. The plane was settling toward the water rapidly. From the corner of his eye, Rick saw the cliff at the southwest corner of Spindrift flash past. Here we go, he yelled. Scotty was gone in a dive into the luggage compartment. Then Rick cut the throttle, jerked back on the wheel with all his strength, and felt something give. He turned and went headlong into the luggage compartment as well, landing in Scotty's lap, just as the plane smashed into the water. There was an instant of whirling chaos as the plane gyrated and water flew. Rick thought he heard the crack and splintering of wood, metal, and fabric. Then his forehead bounced off something, and he sat back, limp. <laughs>